welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus, the leading podcast focused on transformation and change in the higher education space. We're continuing our CIO radio series where we speak with technology leaders about the trends and challenges that are reshaping our increasingly digital space. In today's episode, we speak with James Wiley, Principal Analyst at Edu Ventures. Speaking live at EduCause, James and podcast host Ahmed Alawalia discuss higher education's enrollment woes and talk about the shifting role technology is playing in modern higher ed institutions. James Wiley, thank you so much for joining me on the Illumination Podcast. No, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for inviting me. Man, I'm I'm so glad we finally get to meet in person. We've been working together for, I mean, it has to be eight, seven or eight years at this point. It has point. to be at least, yes. Absolutely. I'm so glad we, we're face-to-face as well. Yeah, well, that, and that's just it. So we're recording live at uh, EduCause here in Denver. Uh, apologies, by the way, for any background noise, but that's part of the show. Uh, so... You know, I, I'm curious. I mean, you, you've, uh, it's been, you know, this is the end of day one. How have you enjoyed the conference so far? Uh, very much. It's great to see people back. That's probably yeah. the biggest thing. Huge. Um, I, it's great to see the enthusiasm and excitement and also the kind of confusion and shock about what the world's going to be like if we yeah. ever get through COVID yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of what the future of technology in higher ed is going to be. So I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying watching the people, enjoying experiencing the um, excitement and all of that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you're one of the industry's leading analysts. Oh, Thank you. How how'd you get into higher ed? What brought you to the industry? I got into K-12 first. Interesting. Uh, so I came... I studied in Europe and I came back and I really wasn't trained to do very much. I wanted to be, <laughs> I wanted to be an ancient philosophy scholar. So uh, it turns out a friend of mine has started a company called The Grow Network, which is a K-12 company that uh-huh. was trying to um, merge assessment and instruction for next steps. And this was around the time of No Child Left Behind. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I started in K-12 and then I was there for about 15 years moving from customer facing roles to tech back-end roles um, working on statewide longitudinal data systems etc and then I kind of wanted a change and then moved to higher ed yeah. seven years ago and moved to EduVentures interesting what's what's interested you the most since you landed at EduVentures I mean you guys have done such an interesting array of research and again I mean we've, we've worked with you to cover some of it but what's really jumped out at you as you think about that career and what are some of the things you're most proud of in that time Thank you. I think the first thing that struck me when I moved from K-12 to higher ed was the lack of availability of funding at the federal level. Right? Yeah. So during K-12, I mean, we had no child left behind. And then we follow that up with Race to the Top, and then you still have some other grants. So a lot of districts and states were operating with almost house money when they selected technology. It wasn't coming out of their pockets. In higher ed, that's not the case. right? They have to be very careful and intentional about it. I think one of the things that I find most exciting and I'm most proud of at Edge Adventures is trying to get people, institutions, to think less about technology as a product Uh and more like a house. And here's the difference, right? So you're trying to, you know, a lot of times you're buying a product to solve a specific problem, right? I want to improve retention and improve graduation rates, et cetera. And what we're seeing are more and more institutions say, you know what, can I grow with this technology? Can this technology help me become the institution I want to be? Can it help me future-proof? 
um, my ecosystem? Can I help me grow like that? And that's more of a house model, right? Where you're looking not just a number of bedrooms, um, whether it has uh, two bathrooms or whatever. You're thinking, can I see myself fa- having a family here, growing old here, etc. So we're seeing institutions think a little bit less about product A versus product B and more about how do they all fit together? How do these products help me become the institution I want to become, serve students, change uh, paradigms, and that kind of stuff. So it's very interesting to see that change. There's still, of course, some institutions who do want to solve a product sure. problem. Like looking for point solutions. Exactly yeah. right. Right. And of course, you don't, you know, you, you buy a vacuum cleaner. You don't want to grow with your vacuum cleaner, right? You want your vacuum cleaner to be exactly a vacuum cleaner. Please clean. Please clean. Yeah. Um, so that's totally fine. But we are hearing more institutions say, I want to solve the problem of onboarding. I want to solve a problem of student engagement. How do I do that? Yeah. Um, is it one piece of technology? Is it 115 pieces of technology? What is it that I need to do um, to put that together? And that's an interesting question and one that we're trying to encourage more institutions to have. Um, and it brings in different stakeholders. But I think personally the output of that. Because going back to the first question about how I got into this, I can say I implemented and or designed about 20 different um, uh, technology solutions. I have literally I'm right, no idea whether I moved the needle. Zero. Right. I know we were within time, scope, and cost, but I have no idea of anything else. And I don't want that to keep happening. Yeah, <laughs> so selfishly, enough. I like to retire in 10, 15 years yeah, saying yeah. somehow we moved the needle, but also I want institutions and vendors to think about that being our sole end goal, moving the needle for students in higher education and how do we marshal technologies to get us there. As we've shifted to a more student-centric environment, right? When we've, you know, we, we, I think we're, we're actively making that shift as an industry towards student centricity. What are some of the leading indicators that you're watching to, to map the progression of that transformation? I think one of the things that we're seeing is a fight. Perhaps fight's not the best word, but a lot of focus on this idea of an engagement layer, right? So somewhere where between the student touch point and all the all between the students and all the technologies underneath. Yeah. What are the touch points? How can I make sure that student, regardless of her mindset, regardless of her portion of the journey, regardless of her needs or not, how can I make sure that her touch point gives her the most value? How can I do that? Right? So essentially you can think about engagement. We think about engagement, involvement, and integration, right? Engagement is, do I feel like I belong? Involvement, am I participating in activities? Integration, do I feel like I fit here, right? Um, and we're seeing that being a main focus of live institutions and some tech vendors as well, right? To say, you know, that's the play, right? We can talk about whether student information systems and CRMs or whatever are useful for the technology, but until we crack that problem, um, all of that is really, is necessary, but not sufficient. Um, so I think the student centricity question, I'm tracking in terms of the heat around this idea of engagement, involvement, and integration. And that's how I'm tracking it. And as I'm hearing more institutions talk about that, and how we're seeing more trends of um, vendors going into that space, I'm like, yeah, student centricity is, is uh, gaining some ground. That's really interesting. I want to ask you a little bit about the enrollment declines that we've seen over the past few years. And, you know, we're recording this at, uh, oh, what day is it? I think we're somewhere near the end of October in 2022. Uh, So last week, uh, National Student Clearinghouse released their new uh, fall 2022 enrollment estimates. We didn't see the 
increase we were hoping for. It's still, it's not as large a decline uh, from 21 to 22 as it was from 20 to 21, but it's still a decline. What's behind that shift and how do we start to buck that trend? I think, you know, some people do point at increased competition options for students. Um, That's one, though we're not really measuring uh, how many students are leaving higher ed per se and going to boot camps or other credential providers. We don't map any of that. We don't map any of that. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of students are beginning to vote with their feet. I think they're beginning to say, you know what, I don't want a transactional experience. I don't want to have my high school, my college, be like a fast food restaurant where I pay you, you give me something at the end, and it's fine. I want to make sure that you have value, you provide value to me, and that value is going to be measured in certain concrete terms, right? Employability, both short term and longer term, right? Not just getting a job right out of college, but longer term. What is going to provide me with a rich experience? Am I going to love being on campus with you? Um, and what does that look like? Is it going to allow me to network and grow socially with friends? I think students are unclear about the value of that. And I think a lot of institutions on the enrollment and admission side are painting a nice picture of the institution, what it can offer, et cetera, but not quite answering those questions. Where students have to say, you know what, if I'm going to spend, not now, but in the future, if I'm going to spend 60, 80, $100,000, I would really like to know what that's going to mean. What's it for? What's it for me? What's going to mean for me? And that's the real case, I think, that yet to be made. So until we do that, I, I think you know we're going to see some enrollment clients further upstream, you know, high schoolers and things like that. But I think that's going to be a challenge for higher ed to kind of try to reduce or reverse these uh, enrollment clients. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the areas we're seeing bumps in, and unfortunately we don't track any of it, uh, is into, we're seeing, like, the, the growth that we're seeing, especially, I mean, I, I have some access to modern campuses, uh, back-end data, and, you know, we're seeing enrollment growth in, in non-traditional and continuing ed spaces. Like, and it's one of these things that it becomes really exciting, because to a certain extent, yes, we're, we're not seeing the enrollments we are used to seeing in degree programming, but I think it's because at the institutional level and at the market level, folks are seeing the opportunity that exists in non-traditional pathways and non-degree credentials and alternative pathways to education. How does that affect us over the long term? Like, what does that mean in terms of the value proposition of the post-secondary institution? It's extremely interesting question. I think the jury's out. I think, you know, higher ed in the U.S., the United States, does has to balance a couple of things, right? It has to balance preparedness for the future, but also well-roundedness, right? You learn to be with other people. You grow as a person, et cetera. Um, you learn new subjects that are outside of your degree program. It's interesting. I, for example, took a course in Indian literature, which was fantastic, and I just chose it because I didn't know anything about Indian literature <laughs> and just enjoyed it. Um, so I think one of the things that higher ed has got to kind of focus on is like, you know, well, what is the value of that, of those two things? And is the value worth the cost for the student? Or should the student say, you know what, I'm not worried about growing up or taking any literature or anything like that. I want to be a computer scientist. I'm going to go ahead and take this non-degree, non-traditional degree program and be a computer scientist because I've got to 
I've got to, you know, take care of my family and I've got to be employable and I've got to do these things right away. Um, and I think higher ed has taken the holistic approach for granted, never made a great use case for it. And so people are saying, well, I don't really need it. So I'm going to just narrow my entire experience and say, oh, it's about learning a particular skill. And that's what I'm going to do. You know, it's actually, it's so disappointing to a certain extent. And, you know, I've benefited from a liberal arts education and you have as well. But Gates Foundation data from, I want to say, the last few weeks um, looked into student motivations and student, you know, the, the demand drivers for, for enrollments. Yeah, something in the order of 80 to 90% of respondents talking about, you know, uh, a the value of a post-secondary investment being for career growth, salary opportunities, uh, employment-based outcomes, a little a little, you think like 52%, just slightly over half of respondents said uh, something along the lines of, of, of becoming a, a better citizen, of, of become, you know, becoming more cultured. And it's, it's, I think that's an unfortunate outcome of the fact that we have made education a private good. It's not, you know, we don't recognize the public benefit of education to a certain extent. We've put the cost on the learner and it's coming out of your pocket that the question of ROI becomes a lot more concrete. It does. It does. I agree with you 100%. You know, I, I think if you look at some of the, you know, John Dewey and some of the other thinkers, it was woven into citizenship. It was woven into being American. It was woven into being all that. And we've narrowed it now. So we've said, you know, your job is to go to college, learn a skill, learn to do your laundry and things like that, but learn to do it, get a skill, and then go off and get a job and start your career, not about these other things which seem, I think, to students uh, to be a little bit more ephemeral. Like, I grew up in the South Bronx. Um, I got that portion, but no one around me understood it. They were, just, you know, they were like, oh, so you're going to college to get a job? That's fine. I was like, yeah, but I'm also learning things I never imagined I could learn. Um, and that's great. But it was just by dumb luck that I was that kind of weird kid. And I got kind of the playability side and uh, yeah. the kind of growth side. I think it's important to recognize, like, there is a both-end com com component. And I'm, I'm glad to see, you know, as much as I'm an advocate for outcomes-based education, as much as I firmly believe in, in the post-secondary industry making space for people who want job outcomes, I am glad that there's still... There's a recognition, at least, that not every institution needs to adopt the same model. It's really a question of how do you make sure you're serving the students coming through the doors. So one thing I'm curious about, and Hall and IQ data came out uh, on OPM partnerships, um, and you know we've seen significant year-over-year -year increases in the number of uh, OPM, Pathway, and uh, boot camp partnerships over the past probably three to four years. Uh, but in the last year, the number of new partnerships fell from 342, uh, or yeah, 342 between 20 uh, and 21 to just 185 expected, 21 to 22. What's behind the drop in the number of institutions forming new partnerships with OPMs? Well, there's always been this tension around the pricing model. Um, but I think at this core, the question for live institutions, at least I spoke to, uh, is kind of why should we outsource something we're supposed to be able to do? Right? Um, and then pay someone else for it. Um, and also, I think some of the institutions have learned to do it. The OPM providers, the struggle there is that you're teaching your customer to essentially be your competitor. 
right? <laughs> but I'm showing you how to spin up an online program, how to market it, do an enrollment, whatever. And you just think, okay, great. You know what? I'm going to sign a five-year contract with you. And in year six, I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> right? I'm going to just go ahead and do it myself. So I think the pricing model struggles are there. I think the existential question about is this something we should be doing um, in-house as opposed to out, uh, outsource uh, is another. I thought you were going to say outhouse. No, no <laughs> almost. And I think the third is just, well, now that I've learned to do it, why do I need to outsource this at all? You've taught me how to do it, or I begin to hire instructional designers to do it in-house. Why should I Why should I go outside? So you have some providers that are not pure OPM, but what they do is give you the building blocks to do online programs, um, and they don't take revenue share. They're kind of one and done, and that's great. And I think you see a lot of their growth is going to continue yes. to grow because yeah. I'm like, you'll give me the platform. consulting at that exactly point. Exactly right. Yeah. right. You'll give me the background and the support to spin up my own, and I will do that. Absolutely. What are some of the other trends you're watching? What are some of the other things that are capturing your imagination right now? I think uh, one of the other trends that we're watching is kind of the distinction or the, the tension, I should say, between whether I want an all-in-one solution or whether I want point solutions. It's a huge, it's been a, a... So you think we're coming back to another ERP versus best of breed? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the question is really, do I want a, a one-stop shop for everything? Or do I have the ability in-house to manage integrations, to think through um, how I put together different point solutions? The um, supporting decision points there are things like scalability, reliability, manageability, et cetera. So they're not purely technological. They're what's normally called design principles, right? Those questions, those, you know, those questions, those capabilities that you might have have to have in-house and you know, an institution and technology provides to you, those are your decision points. But I, I'm tracking that pretty carefully um, because there are some vendors who love the ERP hub-and-spoke model. They're, they're bread and butter, fine. And there are other vendors that say, no, we'll continue to be best in breed point solutions because we can innovate faster and et cetera, whether that's true or not. So that's something that we're going to be tracking a lot more going forward. Absolutely. Well, James, I mean, that pretty much does it on my end. Uh, now, before I let you go, one of the questions we like to end every Illumination episode uh, podcast with is, uh, if someone's going out to dinner in Providence, where do they need to go? Ah, uh, Federal Hill needs to be done. Um, you just have to do it because it's a wonderful place. Has to be done. Um, there are quite a few restaurants up there. Um, there are some restaurants in the middle in downtown that are picking up. But coming from the outside, just for its history, both famous and infamous, you should go to Federal Hill and have dinner. Any particular restaurant? Oh, uh, there are quite a few. There's one called Massimo's. There's one called Panevino. There are a few others that are up there as well um, that spring to mind. But all of them are pretty much good. So just go check it out. Hey, I take a region. Do it. James, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank Same you here. so much. Thank you very much. Thanks. This podcast is made possible by a partnership between Modern Campus and The Evolution. The Modern Campus engagement platform powers solutions for non-traditional student management, web content management, catalog and curriculum management, student engagement and development, conversational text messaging, career pathways, and campus maps and virtual tours. The result? Innovative institutions can create learner-to-earner life cycle that engages modern learners for life while providing modern administrators with the tools needed to streamline workflows and drive high efficiency. To learn more and to find out how to modernize your campus, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.